Good morning. We are going to shift gears and move from prayer to missions. And, you know, sometimes preparing a sermon, it, the title of the sermon is the hardest thing. And, I, you know, Brendan's really creative, and Tom Stewart was always very creative. But I, I purposely entitled this one, I don't know if it's creative or not, Missionality. And I, I want to explain to you, do you guys even notice sermon titles? Do you, know, do you notice them? Do you score them? You're like, that's a plus. Oh, that's, that's marks. No. Well, let me explain this one because we know that men, if you look up on Google, mentality is this, the characteristic attitude or way of thinking. That's no surprise, right? So if we talk about missionality, it's the characteristic attitude or the way of thinking about our mission with God. So I really think it's important that we think about how we think about missions because this is what Paul writes. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. So as you're reading that, you, your eyes should probably stop for a long time about this phrase, living sacrifice. Does that sound good to you? Has anyone ever, you know, before you met Christ, did anyone come and say, hey, listen, you could be living sacrifice? That'd be quite inviting, wouldn't it? It's like, you what? But Paul says that's what our worship is, is to be this living sacrifice. And really what we're going to talk about today is the mentality that surrounds that. To really live that way, uh, it, it takes a renewing of our mind. So we need to know that our mindset is set so that we don't veer off course. Now, how many of you have seen this little license plate deal? God is my co-pilot. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, when I first saw it, when I was a new believer, I was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. And I, I, get, I get the idea that, you know, we want to team with God. We're, we've been talking about that, teaming with God, right? But I, I'll bet if we, if we ask someone like Dick Nelson, who's flown all kinds of planes, you know, would you rather have God as your pilot or your co-pilot? I'm guessing, Dick, you're going to say, let's let him drive. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Dick wants to be the pilot. He's confident. He's got lots of years of experience. But you know, the reality is, is that if God is your co-pilot, it's time to switch seats. You really need to do that. But in order for us to switch seats, it, uh, it's tricky because we like to drive. Notice the 10 and 2. Notice the clenched hands. This is my wheel. I'll go where I go. And we, we, we just like to have a sense of control. But what missions and the Christian life is all about is letting Jesus drive, be the pilot, not the co-pilot, but the one who really takes us where we need to go. Because if we go with the definition that Brendan's laying out, mission means going where he goes. Does that make sense? I mean, that's... 
I, I think when you read that, you go, yep, that's exactly what disciples should be doing. They should be following Jesus because his, his intro is he invites the other folks. He says, come, follow me. We've got to go where he goes. But to do that is really challenging for us. So last week, Brennan mentioned Jesus coming, fully God, fully man. And if you look at Philippians 2, Paul lays out there that what, what Jesus really did was surrender his God powers for that time, and he demonstrated to us what does it really look like to let the Father drive. Us here on earth, the Father in heaven, you take the wheel. Father, you take us where we need to go. And he's always modeling through the Gospels, watch me, because this is what I do, I want you to do. And he demonstrates it. He lives it first. And as he does that, he gives us all these little cool pictures of really how God thinks about us. It feels about us. And you see it like when there's a need, Jesus just does a U-turn and goes right over to this guy's house to pray for his sick kid. When, when there's someone that's saying, hey, you know what? We ran out of wine at the wedding. He takes care of it. You know, so you get all these pictures of what God is really like as opposed to what we make him into. And Jesus comes uh, to demonstrate that, but also to show us if this is how God is, this is what it would look like for us to really let him drive in our lives. And so what we get is not just information, but he gives us a model to imitate. I think I'd, I'd, I'm not a good map reader. Like, uh, when I go on trips, I'm always so grateful. Betsy is the map reader. And I just, you know, turn. She goes, turn right here. I have no idea where I'm going, but I trust her map reading ability because I, I get lost in my own house. But for me, better than a map is a living, breathing person who's been there, right, who take you around, a tour guide. And Jesus is our tour guide. He's, he's saying, step into the Gospels. I'm going to give you a life that you can imitate and I want you to integrate what you see. I want you to do what I do. And this is so key. We all need a sense of seeing where Jesus is going and following because he is our divine pacemaker. Does that make sense? I want to keep in step. I want to walk with him in a way where we really are staying connected. And this is why when you think about prayer and uh, the definition we're working with, is consciously connecting to God. That's why that's so important. But we don't want to just connect. We want to, out of that connection, follow. Go where he goes. So today, what we want to do is we want to, we want to walk into Jesus' example. We want to step into it together. And we want to check our mindset, our missionality. And hopefully, when we finish the day, we will not look this perplexed. Right? So if you'll open your Bibles to um, John 5, we're going to walk through the first nine verses of that. And I'm going to read the first two. And we're just going to read a verse or two, stop for a moment, and do a little check-in. What does this look like? Everybody there? John 5, starting in verse 1. Sometime later... Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, 
which in Aramaic is called Besada, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So we get the setting of the story. And Jesus, being a good Jew, is heading up to Jerusalem for a festival, right? He has plans. This is how this is going to go. So let me ask you this. How many of you are either raising children now or have raised children? Raise your hands up really high. Look around the room. Lots of you. Now put your hands down. How many of you, when you planned a vacation, it went off perfect without a hitch? If so, raise your hand. Notice, no hands, right? And so one of the things that you're going to notice in this story is that um, interruptions many times are God's invitation into something. And what we see here is that Jesus has a plan to go to the Jewish festival. But we know something is up because he enters in the sheep gate. And he is the Lamb of God. But it's interesting, the sheep gate is where the sacrificial lambs would typically be brought. Here's the pool that they're talking about. This is a model. And so he's entering the sheep gate, but that is not the, the usual place that people enter. Usually they would enter in the Jaffa gate or the Damascus gate, either of those two gates. And so we know that something is changing. Someone else is steering the wheel because Jesus is not going in to the normal thing. And so what you see is this interruption. Something's changed. The Father is leading, and he's he's taking Jesus into a certain place or certain situations. So here's my first question, our mindset check-in. What do you think about interruptions? For real. Do you love them? Oh, I'm so glad the car's not starting. (laughs) Praise the Lord. You know? Oh, I'm so glad that there is a line that wraps around the building and there's only one person bringing the register. Praise God. Right? But I want you to think for a moment. Most of the biblical story has its roots and beginnings in interruptions. Is this not true? Moses gets interrupted from his job by a bush that will not burn up. And he goes over to see what's going on, and da-da-da-da, he gets the call. Moses, you've been picked out of millions of people to go and be the deliverer. David the shepherd, he's not even there. Samuel comes to the house and says, you know, I'm looking for this next king guy, and, you know, he thinks it's the big brother. No, 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 no. God looks at the heart, not on the exterior. David shows up, his life is interrupted. Jacob and the angel, interruption. Jonah and the whale, big interruption, right? But a redirection. The Virgin Mary, getting ready to get married. You know, we all, we know how brides are. Interruption, right? Paul is, or Saul is heading down the Damascus Road. Bam, interruption. Now, interruptions irritate us when we don't have the right missionality. Because so oftentimes, if we believe in the sovereign God directing and and, and, and maneuvering our steps, interruptions are a big part. You would not have the international prison ministry if Chuck Colson's life was not interrupted. 
You would not know about Billy Graham if at the age of 13 his life was not interrupted. You see, all these places, there's these interruptions. I mean, one of my favorite stories is a, is a friend of mine, Don Lehman, who was on staff at a church in Indiana. And um, before he was on staff there, he went through this long season of unemployment. And it, it was super hard on him. I, I, you know, I think unemployment's hard on everybody, but you know, poor Don, it, it, was, it was over a year that he was looking. I mean, and he applied at all kinds of places, little restaurants, I'll flip burgers, I'll do anything. He offered to mow lawns and got turned down. But God was working in his life, something very important. He was actually setting him up for his calling. And um, his, I can't remember, if, if some relative set him up with a job interview, a big one, a good one, in Indianapolis, and he lived in Goshen, and so he's, he's heading down, and he got a late start, you know how these things go, you get up and you think your shirt is ready, and, and then you eat something for breakfast, and now that's on your shirt, and you think that's not going to be the best way, you know, so he went through all that stuff, got in his car, and he's trying to make up time, and he gets into Indianapolis, and as he's, as he's going through um, the traffic, he notices that this woman is over with a steaming car over on the side, and he notices her. And his heart says, oh, I should help her. He looks at his watch, he goes, but I can't. And he's driving. And the more he's driving, the more it's like a rubber band, a spiritual rubber band. Imagine like a cartoon. He's, he's going, he's going, going, and there's so much tension in the rubber band, and finally he goes, okay, God, I'll do it. And he swings around, goes back, gets on, and pulls over, gets out, man, what's wrong? And he takes a look at the car, and I, I don't know, he, he jiggled a few things, did a few things, says, I think you're going to be okay. Um, and then she got in, closed it, it, took off, and he gets in his car, and now his hands are one greasy mess. And he's looking at his watch, and he goes, this is terrible. I'm going to be late. I'm going to walk in looking like a grub dog. And so he, he finally finds the office complex he has to go in, goes to the complex, he goes, Hi, I'm, I'm Don Lehman, and I'm here for a job interview. I know I'm late. I'm so sorry. I, I had stopped to help somebody. And so don't worry. You know, Ann is going to see you soon. And so he sits down, and, you know, can you feel the anxiety of the moment? And then uh, this woman walks out and says, Mr. Lehman, I'll see you now. And when he looks up, guess who it is? Guess who got the job? <laughs> you see, interruptions, they're so important when, when we frame it with good missionality, where we look at it, 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 it's such an important part of how God directs our steps. So Jesus is allowing the Father to direct him with this interruption. And here's where he goes. Read this. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Picture this. This is a massive infirmity. I mean, there are, there are bodies that are maimed. There are people that have been destitute because these people would have been written off spiritually because back then in near Middle Eastern thought, if you had these things, it's probably because you earned them, you deserve them. So not only are you crippled, but you're also ostracized. Wow. And here comes God stepping right into the middle of all this brokenness. To me, it's just incredible. 
I, I, I want to I be in that moment with Jesus. I want to I watch his eyes. What does he do as he sees broken humanity? This next week, our kids, uh, our youth group, are going to San Diego to step into a pool setting. Aren't they, guys? The homeless. And San Diego is the homeless capital of America. I mean, and, and, and you, you know, I think you all know the vibe when you're, when you're walking through and there's, there's a, a bunch of homeless people. Do you know what I'm talking about? It feels awkward and uncomfortable and you feel nervous. What's going to happen? Here's Jesus stepping in. God is directing his steps to step into this thing. So here, number two, missionality check, mentality check. How do you think about uncomfortable? How do you think about uncomfortable? Do you avoid it? Do you steer away from it? Or do you embrace it like Jesus does? Because Jesus is there. I had to learn, and I, 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 you know, I'm still not super excited like to go to the doctor myself. I don't know anyone who's really excited to see the doctor. Probably should see me for psychological reasons, but um, I did not like hospital visits as a pastor. I just didn't like them. And, and I, I had this mentality of like, oh, you know, there's, there's all these sick people, and there are, you know. And I, I kind of felt like, ooh, it's going to rub off on me. You know, and I, so I would avoid them until one day I could not deny the fact that God was there. It was the father who was dying. His one request on his dead, deathbed was that he'd somehow be able to talk to his daughter before he died. And I found out that he had been estranged with her for 22 years. I was there at both the requests when she walked in the room. And they made amends. It was holy ground. I wept. They wept. The sense of God in that room was supercharged. And then I started to put it together. God and suffering and us equals community. Equals church equals miraculous things. So we really have to ask ourselves, how do we feel about uncomfortable? And I want to invite a brave soul up here to talk with me. Wendy, why don't you come? Wendy Horvath. We were talking about uh, uncomfortable. Ta-da! Welcome aboard. Thanks. <laughs> so, so we were talking and um, you had mentioned uh, this sermon that you'd heard. So why don't, why don't you tell the congregation a little bit about what happened? Okay. <clears throat> Sorry. So in February, let's go back a little bit. My grandfather died, and, you know, he was 96, so it was a complete surprise, but he got sick and died suddenly. And so I came out of that feeling very emotionally fragile and tired and just like I just couldn't handle, you know, anybody else's stuff because I was dealing with my own stuff. So then early March, I go to visit um, a friend of mine who had a baby, and 
her son went down for a nap while I was there, and we were talking, and all of a sudden she starts crying and talking about how overwhelmed she was, and it's so hard, and, and I'm like, <sighs> but I, you know, I encouraged her and talked to her and, and um, you know, kind of just encouraged her that mm-hmm. it'll get better, you know, it'll get easier, and so then I left there, and I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, I, I can't handle this, you know. And so then the next morning, a different friend called me, and I was on my the, way. The next morning. Yeah, the okay, next morning. the next morning. I was on my way to do something. I don't remember what I was doing. And she called me, and she's like, hey, are you busy? And I said, well, yeah, I'm on my way to do this. And she she starts crying on the phone, and she's like, oh, I'm okay. It's okay. Never mind, you know. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, I could I could say, oh, you're okay, goodbye, <laughs> or, you know, I, but I said, no, no, what's going on, and so I met her for breakfast somewhere, and, and she has a two-year-old daughter, and she started talking about the problems she was having with her daughter, her daughter was, you know, getting angry with her, and not listening to her, and being really obstinate, and, and she starts crying, and talking about how My friend starts crying, talking about how she had a bad relationship with her mom, and she doesn't want a bad relationship with her daughter. And and so, again, I was inside going, (sighs) but, you know, on the outside, I just said, no, it's, you know, it's going to be okay. You know, you don't have a bad relationship with your daughter. She's two, you know, and two-year-olds are obstinate, and and that's just the way they are. And and, uh, so I encouraged her, and you know, and lifted her up, and and then I was going to Chicago to visit a different friend who has do- two daughters about the same age as my son, middle school age, and I thought, well, she's not going to need advice from me or anything, you know, I don't know anything about daughters, <laughs> you know, I have a son, so I go to visit her, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be so relaxing, you know, we're, we're just going to hang out and have fun. And I get there, and her oldest daughter was having a medical crisis, and she had just that week gotten her in with an appointment with a specialist. And, and she was like, should I change the appointment? I'm like, no, it's, it's too hard to get appointments with specialists. So, you know, up, leading up to the appointment, my friend just wanted to talk about, you know, what's the doctor going to say? What's going to happen? You know, what's, gonna, what's going on? And... Then after the appointment, she just wanted to talk about what the doctor had said and what does this mean, and he's ordered mm. these tests. And, you know, it was some, ser- some serious issues with her daughter, and, and so I had to just listen to her and encourage her and be there for her. And I'm driving home from Chicago thinking, I'm even more tired than when I left. <laughs> I didn't think that was possible. So then Sunday comes, and we go to church, and Mark's doing a sermon on community and, and friendship and being there for people and how inconvenient it is. And I'm sitting there going, yes, it is. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and everything you say about how hard it is and, you know, it's, you know, we have to do stuff that we don't want to do. And I'm, and I'm just agreed with them. I'm like, check. Yes. Yes. And, but you know, what I, what I got from it as I was listening to Mark talking about it, I just got this feeling from God of, you've been doing it. You know, 
not even knowing that that's what you're supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. you've been doing it and you've been there for your friends, you know, just like they've been there for you, you know, and this is part of community and it's not always easy and it's not always fun, but this is, this is part of what God has sent us here to do. Amen. So. Give Wendy a hand, would you? Thank you, Wendy. I really appreciated Wendy's story for a lot of reasons, but, you know, it, it's real. Because in, in those moments, you know, you just think, how is this going to do? But grace comes in, and somehow you're able to do what you need to do. You can't do on your own strength, but you do it because God's strength is, is available. And we need to practice. That's the other beautiful thing about her story. I, you know, I, I don't know. Would you call yourself a professional encourager now, Wendy? Are you going to hold seminars here at Bridgewood? But we're all practicing, aren't we? And so, you know, those, these, these opportunities open up, and it's a chance to step in and practice. But usually it involves an interruption, like in Wendy's life, and then it, it takes us to a place that feels uncomfortable. And so we need to have a sense of, in those moments, we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. Now, we want to see what happens as Jesus does, as it, uh, let the father drive, interrupt his life, take him to an uncomfortable zone. Here's what we read. He steps into this place, and there's one that he notices who had been an invalid for 38 years. Keep in mind, people in this time of life probably would have a lifespan of about 40 years. So almost his entire earthly life, he's, he's going to be this way. And um, Jesus notices him. Now, this looks like an impossible situation. So you have to ask yourself, what do I think about the impossible? Miss, one thing, what do I think about interruptions? What do I think about, you know, uncomfortable? But what do I really think about impossible? Because if we're really going to be good missionaries, there is no impossible, is there, people? If you would have surveyed Port Washington High School's graduating class in 1975 and you would have said, is Mark Spencer going to be a Christ follower and is he going to be a minister? They would go, impossible. Impossible. If you would have looked at John Newton, the the writer of Amazing Grace, if you would have looked at his life as a slave trader, one who had abandoned the faith, who had bailed on the Navy, who had been ostracized from his country, is he going to be this guy that sings a hymn that's sung over and over and over again, reminding us of God's infinite, unchangeable grace? Is John Newton going to be the guy? If you would have surveyed the first church and said, listen, we're going to take a vote. How many of you think Saul of Tarsus is going to become the apostle and writer of most of the New Testament? How many of you think? No. Impossible. When God hears on earth, impossible, I think he stoops a little bit lower and goes, get ready. Right? God loves the impossible because it's just a showcase for him. There's no way that we could do it. There's no way that we have the ingenuity or the power or the system or the plan. But God steps in. That's what the Red Sea thing's all about. Oh, great. 
We finally get out. We got an army here and a big body of water. It's impossible. No, it's not, Moses. Raise your staff. Not only did it make safe passage, but problem solved. No more army. God loves the impossible. So let's see what Jesus does in this moment. But Jesus saw him lying there, and he learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time. He asked them a very weird question. Do you want to get well? What? Now, there's something we need to recognize here. He's not asking it to be an an irritating guy. He's not asking it to, to... make us go, ooh, what did he ask the question? He's asking because there's something that God needs from us. It's just a little kernel. I'm willing to be willing. I'm willing to be willing. He needs that. And then he can do his work. You see, some people in this situation, they might like the the service they get. They might have grown comfortable in the condition they are. And they don't really want that. And one thing that we have to ask ourselves over and over again as Christians who are growing more mature and more familiar with the things is we need to check ourselves. Are we willing to be willing to be interrupted? Are we willing to be willing to be taken into the uncomfortable? Are we willing to be willing to let him use us to do the impossible? We're willing. The guy answers. He says, Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day which this t- took place was on the Sabbath, which becomes quite a popular topic for the rest of the chapter, but we're not going to go there today. But I want you to see in this moment a couple of things. Notice something. We're talking about mission. We're talking about discipleship over here. Discipleship is together as we are consciously connecting with God. Mission's going where he goes, and we're going to finish by talking about community. Notice something here. The guy says, I have no one. I have no one. Somehow we have to figure out as a community of faith, what does it look like for everyone to have someone? And I, I wish, I wish that I had like a, a magic clap on, clap off where I could go, everybody get someone now, at least someone. But I, it's, that doesn't happen. I don't get one of those. Do you have one of those, Sharon? I, I, I don't, I mean, I looked in... We don't have those. It's really going to be up to all of us together saying, Lord, what are you doing here? And at that point in time, the question will come, will we be willing to be interrupted? Will will we be willing to do the uncomfortable? To let God do the impossible? One of my favorite small groups of all time was an impossible group. It was a bunch of unlikely people. How in the world would we ever get along? But... we grew because God loved that we were willing. And then he made it possible. The second thing that I want you to notice in this encounter is that none of this happens 
if Jesus doesn't allow for an interruption. None of this happens if Jesus doesn't go into the uncomfortable place. And none of this happens if Jesus doesn't trust God, his Father, to do the impossible. It is all dependent on a right missionality. I asked K.P. Yohanan, a guy who is uh, a leader in India, who has seen many miracles. I asked him one time, um, K.P., why in America do we not see the things that you see? And his answer was this. He says, you don't see it because you don't go where he goes and trust him to do what he can only do. It was hugely convicting. We need to go where he goes. And He's not going to ask us to go up to lame people on the street and tell them to get up and pick up their mat. He's not going to start there. He's going to start where you are, which it might just be walking across the sanctuary to meet somebody new and to say, hey, how long have you been coming here? It, it might be something like you say, hey, could we get coffee sometime? I just would like to hear your story, get to know you some more. It could be sitting down with that coworker who drives everybody nuts and saying, you know, can we have lunch together? It could be something like that. We have to go where he goes. So in order to practice this, here's what we need to do. We need to always be asking this question. Lord, what are you doing here? When you're in that tense moment with your spouse or with your kid or with your neighbor or with your coworker, when you're, when you're struggling in a situation or a setting, you need to stop and go, Lord, oh, yeah, that's right. I've got to get consciously connected. What are you doing here? Where are you going? Because I don't want you just to be my co-pilot. I want you to be the pilot. John Ortberg is a favorite pastor of mine. And he tells a story that I think is a, it's a great story about missionality, about being willing to be interrupted, uncomfortable, and to see God do the impossible. And sometimes it seems like, you know, that's not that big of a deal. But he talks about when he was the pastor of the First Congregational Church in Redwood, California. And this church, their, their, their big thing, it's like our spring production I saw Cheryl had to go to work. I was hoping Cheryl would be here for the story. You'll have to catch her up, Todd, on this one. But, you know, when we do that, the big children's production where lots of families come and lots of kids are involved, well, what they did at Christmas time was they did a live Christmas pageant. Animals. And they had, uh, Ortberg said it was funny. We didn't have many cows, but we had lots of Vietnamese pot-bellied pigs and um, all kinds of kind of scraggly chickens. And anyhow... The, the, the big deal was every year the kids, all their names would go in a hat and they'd draw out a Joseph and they'd draw out a Mary and they would get to ride the donkey into the live pageant. Big deal. I mean, think kids. This is huge. This is massive. And uh, just as the show is supposed to be getting ready to get organized and they're going to kick it off, the donkey owner calls and he's frazzled. The trailer's not working and they don't know if they're going to be able to make it. So Ortberg's just like, oh, no. You know, almost as important as Jesus and Mary is going to be the donkey. You know, you need that. What are you going to do without a donkey? And so he hangs up the phone, and he's thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And the phone rings again. And as uh, 
the phone rings, it's, it's this woman who asks and says, you know, my daughter is in the pageant, but she can't make it. I'm a single mom. Uh, I don't have a car. Can you come and pick my daughter up? This is 10 minutes before the show is supposed to kick off. John Orberg does what most of us do. He says, no, I can't. It's too, I don't have time. It's just too inconvenient. And he hangs up. And as soon as he hangs up, he goes, <coughs> his heart. You know, the Holy Ghost knows how to do that, right? Pa, 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 hey. So he picks up the phone, calls back this lady. He says, listen, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Tell your daughter to have her angel wings strapped on because we're going to go. And as he goes to pick up, he says, Lord, you've got to do this. You've got to get the donkey to the show. I'll get this girl to the show, and you've got to make this show go because I can't make it go. It's way above my pay grade. So he gets the girl. He goes back to the church. He comes in. There's the donkey owner. The donkey's there. The donkey owner comes out. We met the nicest person who helped us with the trailer we got here. Oh, great, great, great. He says, we started 15 minutes late, but it was okay. No one seemed to mind, except the chicken that kept running off the stage. He says, the next week I got a call from the mom whose daughter I had picked up from the homeless shelter. She says, I want to thank you for picking up my daughter. And at the last minute like that, she went on to say, Marissa is the oldest of my three children. I'm a single mom. And it's all I can do to hold the two younger children at the same time. Marissa is always jealous that there's never any room on my lap for her. But I want you to know that ever since the pageant, she prays before she goes to bed at night and talks to God like Jesus is really her best friend. She tells me now that it's okay that I hold the younger two children because Jesus holds her. Mission accomplished. Right? Was it a divine interruption? Was it uncomfortable? Did God do the impossible? That's what we need to believe. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for who you are, what only you can do. As we prepare for this offering, I hear your spirit asking us if we'll offer ourselves in places where there's interruption, in places where it feels uncomfortable, unfamiliar. But out of that, you'll do the impossible. So Lord, as we continue to worship, to take communion, to listen, to watch what you're doing, work in our hearts that we would have your missionality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.